Watcher of the Dead. Transmutation, Texas by R.H. Snow. Episode 2. This week's episode, Virus. The Watcher pulled his pencil stub and small spiral notepad out of his frayed chambray shirt pocket and printed in block print. Correction day. Wednesday, repeated. October 6, repeated. 11.45 p.m. Year 54ATH. Last night, I saw a child in a vision. He wrote all he could remember, meanwhile diligently monitoring the archway. Her hair, her eyes, her mother. They definitely looked like afterlings, the watcher grunted to himself. He had never been a big believer in fairies, even as a child. But if there were fairies, he figured they would look like these mythical, ephemeral Texas afterlings. The afterling encounter. Could they be Jungian archetypes? The child and the woman could represent so many different things. He mulled this between glances upward towards the archway. Once, long ago, there had been four arches, side by side. Now only one remained, with its cream-colored brick pillars and wrought iron arch. The word reunion still graced the arch spanning the 20-foot road that ran through the archway. His eyes rested on small plants growing around the base of the brick posts of the archway, their blooms opening. Flipping to an earlier entry, the watcher finished his field notes on the flowers. Having read every field guide he could scavenge from homes and libraries, he knew some of their names, but not all. He drew crude pencil sketches of the fall blooming plants with labels for ease of identification later. A purple speckled, deep-throated blossom with thread-like green stems, a yellow daisy-like one with similar foliage. But his favorite was an upright green spike whorled with tiny white orchids, a single green stripe in each of their throats. Blooming only in the fall, it grew behind the gate, in a moist drainage ditch. He could only see a peak of it through the post of the gate, just beyond his reach, but not beyond his heart. In his mind, the nodding white bells along with the other little flowers at the gate were his own private garden at the archway. He heard a whippoorwill crying in the night and tersely noted the date. The watcher wondered wryly if afterlings appreciated amateur field guides to birds or flowers. That would be a welcome change, he decided. Nobody, Nobody else, else around, around here, here does. There had been whispers of afterlings even in the early days after the happening. Around campfires, after the talk had devolved from weapons to misadventures, to chupacabras and how to kill them, to mythic beasts of the Badlands, 
to hunting, to fishing, to sexual encounters, to memories. After all the subjects had been bled dry and the fire was burning low, a drunken survivor would repeat the old tale. They say Ranger Gonzalez found one naked in a tree once, gutted like a fish. A plump little midget female with smooth, bright yellow skin, big dark eyes, and wild black hair. She might have been pretty if she hadn't been dead for a while. It wasn't that survivors didn't appreciate the camp's few available biofems. They did, as each one had her own particular charms. But there weren't enough biofams to go around. And to be honest, they really didn't look like women anymore. To be fair, the watcher thought bluntly, men didn't really look like men either. Transmutated survivors still looked feminine, masculine, or humanoid. Not necessarily human. All survivors' skins were afflicted by the happening. Survivors were diverse in their afflictions. Thick, discolored skin, covered variously in leathery warts, oozing scales, and woody protuberances were symptoms of their bodies of autoimmune response to the unknown bioagent. Survivors' skins looked vaguely reptilian, but some looked more plant-like in their infirmity. The inflammation greatly affected exposed skin, and one could tell what a survivor had been wearing in those early days after the happening based on what part of their skin was rough or smooth. Protected skin and body parts were less likely to be changed, but any body part or organ system could all be attacked by the autoimmune response. Most survivors had some undesired side effect, like stiff joints or moist patches, and all cursed the itching. Transmutation played all hell on typical human sexual dimorphism. Biofems in any condition were now a rarity. Transfems lost all their engineered femininity, and the majority of surviving biofems changed into hembras. The bioagent increased expression of testosterone at varying levels in survivors, resulting in sterility of male and female alike. Nonetheless, survivors were still humans. And sex was still sex, even with all of its new complications. Everyone was now measured on a sliding spectrum of testosterone, the transmutation scale. At the top of the transmutation scale were machos, bio-male survivors who were genetically vulnerable to the bio-agent-induced overexpression of testosterone. They were hulking and dangerous, more emotionally charged, unpredictable, and more likely than most survivors to be pansexual. Machos were also very good at killing, a worthy trade in life after. Next down on the scale were hombres. 
the majority of survivor men who experienced only minimal enhancement after the happening. Nothing more than premium exercise and diet would induce. They still benefited physically from extra testosterone. Hombres were mostly heterotrads, but more than a few pansexuals could be found in their number. They were less hair-triggered and more cunning than most machos. Hombres were also far more likely to be heart-healthy than machos, who sometimes died after a fit of rage, clutching their chests in agony. Down the scale from the hombres were the fierce, sultry ambras, those few remaining survivor biofems who had become more masculinized in response to the happening's bioagent. Lithely muscled and more aggressive than less exposed females, Hembras still bore feminine characteristics in varying degrees and were preferred by many partners for their strength and sharpened sexual appetite. At the bottom of the transmutation scale were the soft, mostly feminine chicas. Chicas were as scarce as hen's teeth. Though least affected by the virus physically, they were still afflicted by loss of hair and skin plaques but were less muscular and retained a layer of subcutaneous fat. Like anything considered weak in this world where only the strong would survive, chicas were vulnerable to exploitation unless they could negotiate alliances with stronger partners. Rarely seen outside the confines of the plantations, they were considered a luxury item in a world of practical needs. For those who ascribed to the pansexual doctrine of the last New World Meeting, BTH, or before the happening, the lack of biofems was no problem at all. They were happy to browse on the oversupply of testosterone-enhanced samples offered to them among the remaining survivors. But this left the majority of survivors unrepentant heterotrads in unhappy need. As the gender imbalance became obvious in the first decade ATH, after the happening, realignment occurred. Lacking the technological expertise they had been used to create trans femmes in life before, survivor society demanded a solution Regardless of levels of testosterone, for many survivors, the male to female preference still had its charms. And since transmutation-induced sterility ensured that the supply of femmes would never again meet demand, demand was very high. The Watcher firmly believed that sad imbalance gave birth to the myth of the afterling. Like the famous El Dorado of old, legends sprang up about a fabled lost city of afterlings just waiting to be discovered by some lucky adventurer brave enough to fight the wildlands to find them. Other legends sprang up too. Rumors of mutated abominations and fantastic monsters spread just beyond the known reaches of the Tejas Co-op. 
but no tall tale was as persistent as the legend of the afterlings. The idea that a man might one day stumble into a lost treasure trove of fairy-like dark-haired women was very appealing. And so, when the fires burned low, talk would inevitably turn to where an intrepid explorer might find these mythical fat midget females, and what a survivor can do with one. The watcher snorted to himself. Maybe someday I'll log an entry of an afterling sighting. The pencil stub felt minuscule in his massive fingers. Fortunately, the beaded, shiny warts covering his hands were still pliable and had not grown stiff like some survivor's skins. It was a good thing that he could never sleep, he guessed. It gave him more time to write. There would not be much time to write tomorrow, only new experiences to put in his writings. Tomorrow, his delayed weekly scavenging patrol would resume, and he would be able to walk in the wildlands, breathing the fragile air of freedom before the craving returned to smother it. He took advantage of these quiet hours before his craving came back to write and think. The camp was still silent except for one contrary rooster crowing in the distant pole barn east of the pavilion. That lonely cry made the morning seem even further away. The fourth watch brings a darkness of the soul all its own. In this time, the watcher wondered most about ghosts and if the old tales were true. He could understand why some survivors swore the camp was haunted. The judge sometimes still called it the Confederate Reunion Ground after its old local name, but she was the only one. The rest of the survivors straggling in from up and down the corridors just called it Reunion. In those first two decades, a steady flow of survivors wandered into camp, sometimes by accident, others following the sound of drums. In recent years, those numbers had dwindled to nothing. But Reunion was still the largest known camp of the far-flung Tejas Co-op, outmanned only by that unruly survivor metropolis to the south. The watcher had dutifully made note of this useful observation during the last census. 187 survivors at Reunion Camp. 145 citizens, 35 public servants, seven private contractors. Of all those survivors, 26 biofems at Reunion Camp, six citizens, 15 public servants, five private contractors. Any camp in the co-op could force a survivor to become a valuable public servant owned jointly by all the landlords of the cooperative as a path to citizenship or in repayment for offenses if execution wasn't desirable. But if a survivor's primary society value was for sexual purposes, they could set up as a private contractor for a particular landlord in exchange for protection and shelter. A very few smaller hombres, many hembras, 
and almost all chicas were automatically made private contractors to the landlords if they wished to enter the camp as refugees, unless they had skills more desirable than their own sexual abilities. The wealthiest landlords had first pick of refugees and could bid on private contractors at auction in exchange for food and goods produced on the landlord's private plots in camp or from one of their vast plantations. At first, this economic inequity created the usual societal chaos. Brutal fights and riots broke out over the few femmes that were available. When two valuable hembras were killed in the aftermath of the last riot, the landlords declared an emergency meeting. Fortunately for reunion camp, they had the judge. Stunningly tall and imposing Hembra, with pale green eyes and smooth bronzed scales, the judge was both mother and boss of the camp, and to all in the Teos Co-op. It was she who came up with a workable solution. All Biofem public servants were signed up for mandatory community service as hostesses for the new community club. It was an immediate success. Weekly Wednesdays for the Silver Club members and Saturday for the Gold Club members. The community club would meet in the dance pavilion for socials. Hostesses and hopeful citizens would line up on their scheduled monthly appointment for their number to take a spin at the Wheel of Love. It was an old Lazy Susan cleverly repurposed to serve as a lottery wheel, and it did the job. Its randomness ensured that all would get a chance at interaction, no favoritism allowed. If a citizen showed up on their designated day, they could win a chance at a guaranteed encounter. No rejection. As the judge would cheerily intone at each social, participants just had to spin and win. Well, maybe a win for most men who showed up. For most club hostesses, it took a lot of abuelita shine to make it feel like a win. Still, the hostesses complied, as all community service hours were rewarded with society score points, which counted towards citizenship. The watcher scowled involuntarily. Nowadays, Abuelita played along gamely with the whole community service concept of socialization. Once defiant and feisty, Abuelita had fought the system. But in these last decades, the old woman had surrendered to her captivity, weary of the struggle, afraid of the cost of rebellion against the system. Surrender. Growling low to himself, the watcher remembered the words of William Barrett Travis's letter from the Alamo. I shall never surrender or retreat. Then I call on you in the name of liberty. The watcher felt like an abject failure. The last time he escaped, he had been so close to liberty at last, but the watcher had surrendered just to save Abuelita from the clutches of the rangers and the posse hunting him. 
The posse had baited him with threats of torture to Abuelita. When she cried out under their cruel torment, the watchers surrendered. He should have killed them all, but they would have killed Abuelita first. I surrendered. Angry at his own stupidity, the watchers sometimes wished he were even more of a sociopath just so he wouldn't care about the dusty bruja. He could have escaped had he not cared about Abuelita at all. But his need to rescue and protect drove him mad, and he surrendered. He wondered what Travis would have thought of his Texans now. I shall never surrender. The echo of those words lit a fire in the Watcher's spirit, kindling a weary determination. Somehow, someday, Liberty would present herself again. She would wave from afar. Then the Watcher would once again rise to fight for victory or death. The Watcher grumbled. Enough tried sentimentality. It's time to do something. As his mother's Bible had admonished, it was time to train his hands for war and his fingers for battle. Tucking his notepad and pencil into his pocket, he stood up from his wrought iron lawn chair to stretch his muscular compact frame to realign his back. Not an exceptionally tall man, he was still strong and powerfully built, with a broad, heavily muscled torso and stout limbs. He removed his black oilskin cowboy hat, then pulled a short, heavy sledgehammer from a loop of leather strap affixed to his belt. Swinging the sledgehammer felt good, pleasure in performing this simple act. He worked with vigor, sweat from his brow trickling down, his skin crusted and ridged with a thousands of tiny pinprick warts, felt irritated. A medium-length galvanized chain, secured around his neck by a small padlock, his public servant's padlock chain necklace, banged against his clavicle and rhythm to his exercises. The necklace, the required uniform for all public servants was a constant chafing reminder to himself and everyone else about his status in society. Someday, he vowed darkly, I will cut it off and throw it in their faces. This is author R.H. Snow. Thank you for listening to my post-apocalyptic sci-fi western series, Watcher of the Damned, Transmutation, Texas, Episode 2, Virus. Be sure to tune in every Monday at WatcherOfTheDamned.com for even more epic adventures in post-apocalyptic Texas. Next week's episode... Chained. Chained.